Hi, this is Dr. Carrie Jones, and today we'll be mapping testosterone on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-minute matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important, not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, recommendations, and outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15 Minute Matrix, I have a special two-part episode for you. First, I'll be talking with Dr. Carrie Jones about testosterone in females, and then I'll be introducing you to Dr. Ralph Esposito, who will speak into the male part of the testosterone equation. Dr. Carrie Jones is an internationally recognized speaker, consultant, and educator on the topic of women's health and hormones. She graduated from the National University of Natural Medicine, School of Naturopathic Medicine in Portland, Oregon, where she also completed her two-year residency in women's health, hormones, and endocrinology. Later, she graduated from Grand Canyon University's Masters of Public Health program with a goal of doing more international education. She was adjunct faculty for many years teaching gynecology and advanced endocrinology and fertility and has been the medical director for two large integrative clinics in Portland. She is now the medical director for Precision Analytical, creators of the Dutch Hormone Test. Carrie, welcome back to the 15-Minute Matrix. Oh my gosh, Andrea, thank you so much. I always love talking to you about hormones. And <laughs> way back, Carrie, in episode number 19, which is hard to believe, <laughs> of the podcast, we mapped progesterone. And I wanted to bring you back to talk about another important sex hormone, testosterone. And today in our discussion, we're going to be focusing on the ladies and our tea. Can you help us define testosterone and why it matters to the female body? Yes. You know, with men's health, it gets all the play, but for right. women, we need it. We need it. It's so important. And it's important for women to know that we make it in three different places. We make roughly 25% of it in our ovaries. We mm. make the other 25%-ish in our adrenal glands. And then we make 50, like 50% of it, believe it or not, in our fat tissue predominantly. So when practitioners are working with patients with low testosterone, I'll say, you know, you have to look kind of in three places, ovarian health, adrenal health, and then kind of peripheral everything else health. And why would we even be thinking to look there? Like what are the signs, symptoms of low T? 
So the big ones I hear a lot, obviously, are low libido, Mm -hmm. but we also hear like trouble getting muscle mass putting on, feeling squishier than normal and in in their tissue and their skin and their belly and their booty. Um, And then low energy mood issues. Testosterone plays with serotonin. Testosterone plays with dopamine. Um, Even vaginal health, believe it or not, estrogen gets a big role, of course, with vaginal health, but we know that if we use a little bit of vaginal testosterone that women have reported um, improvement in, you know, atrophy and, and dryness. And so um, testosterone's needed in, in balance, right? In balance. It's like Goldilocks. <laughs> yeah, and Goldilocks, it's just, just a good point with hormones. And there's so many questions I have around that balance because that balance is going to look different for each of us. So the first thing I'm kind of wondering if we go to the left side of the matrix and we think about not just where we produce testosterone, but what would lead to lower levels, what are the factors there that we'd consider for low testosterone? So the two, two big things I look at, one are is ovarian health and adrenal health. And so we're looking at anything that can affect that, such as, you know, long-term stress, um, environmental pollutants, um, uh, as women get into perimenopause and menopause, or even um, having irregular cycles for whatever reasons, because you're just not producing the hormones and testosterone is kind of the first hormone you make in the adrenals before you move on to estrogen and then progesterone. So really anything that affects, suppresses, depresses ovarian and adrenal health. Medications, Mm. think like your opioid pain medications can do it. I've even read that potentially some of the NSAIDs, you know, people are taking Mm. pain medications, they get cramps, they get headaches, they have back pain, and they're taking chronic everyday NSAIDs, and that's affecting the way that the body makes We think of other hormones, estrogen, progesterone, but we forget it also affects how we make testosterone. And then there's how we make it, Carrie, but there's also how we metabolize it, right? Some certain people may be incorrect. Is it incorrect? It's just that it's leading to, it can lead to challenges in the body. It can. So it's more of like like a dominant preference. So when you, when you make testosterone, it gets broken down by an enzyme called 5-alpha or 5-beta reductase. And it's that 5-alpha reductase that gets all the press because that eventually makes 5-alpha, DHT. And DHT is what they say five to eight times more potent than testosterone at the testosterone receptor. And that's what causes the hair loss on our head, the hair growth in places we don't want, the cystic acne on the jawline, the the you know the moodiness, the anger, the irritation. Um, it's associated with PCOS. And so when we get too much down that pathway, then we run into those problems. And that's about kind of a a fork in the road, right? It could be shunting one way positively, one way (laughs) negative. Is that, do I have that? Yeah. So a lot of women, again, it's like anything is a balance. And so most women don't want acne. They don't want hair loss. They don't like excessive hair around their nipples. But yet when we go the other way, when we're very sort of beta related, I do notice just anecdotally that women struggle with libido and they struggle with energy and maybe they struggle with mood. They're just, they don't, just like the word, we use the word in the English language alpha, like they just, they need a little more alpha in them, Mm. they need a little more oomph Mm -hmm. and they're not getting it when they're a very strong five beta pathway. We see it in men more, but I do hear it from women. 
It's so interesting to think about this Goldilocks amount. And this is something I always wish, and I don't know how you feel about this, Carrie, but I always wish that we all had our hormones tested in our early 20s. So we knew what our baseline was. Like, I feel like we could have something that looks like, okay, testosterone, but for that person, for that body, it still feels low. It still feels high. We can't tell because we don't know our baseline. So there's some element, even with testing, where we're guessing for that individual, or at least that's how it feels to me. And I love that you said that when I talk about libido with women, one of my questions is, is an example, did you always have high libido and now it's low? Or was your libido kind of meh and now it's even lower? What I mean by that is, were you always at a 10 and now you're at a two? Or were you always at a four? And now you're at a two. Right. So you, you, like the, the amount you've, quote, fallen off the mountain is a lot for the 10 person and just a little bit for the four person. So we don't have to work as hard per se. And so if I knew what their testosterone was when they were younger, boy, that would help me answer that question. Like, wow, when you were younger, which makes sense, we generally do have higher testosterone as women when we're younger, but still it lets me know how far up or down the mountain they were and how where they are right now. One of the things I love about this is it brings us back to what I like to think of as personal evidence, right? We can look at the studies, we can look at the tests, but really <laughs> we have to engage with the person sitting in front yes. of us because they have some information that that other data can't tell us. And it's that kind of matrix of information that yes. we bring together to address something like, is this low testosterone for this person? Yes. And, you know, they get, somebody gets pulled. I, you know, your testosterone's fine. I don't know what your problem is. But then when you ask those deeper questions, well, what was your testosterone like five years ago? Or what was your libido like? Or what was your energy like? Or what was your muscle mass like five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? You just like the matrix, you get a whole timeline. (laughs) Right. As they answer the question, and that can really help you go, oh, I bet you've historically had high, you know, high for them. And that's what they feel the best at. And now they're struggling because they've come way, way down the mountain as opposed to somebody else. Like I was saying earlier, you know, maybe they're only about halfway up the mountain and that's their normal. So it's not as hard of a fall when they come down, but we won't know until we ask or if we have the history. And when we're talking to women about testosterone, which is an androgen, do you find that patients have fear around bringing in supplemental testosterone? Yes and no, not nearly as much fear as when they have around estrogen. Mm. But um, I do women do say, will it, will it make me break out? Will it make me grow a beard? Will it, <laughs> you know, will I, will I get really angry? Will I turn into the Mrs. Incredible Hulk <laughs> if I do right. testosterone? So I do get those questions. What about aromatization with testosterone? Anything we should be thinking about there as clinicians? Yeah. So believe it or not, all estrogen in the female body, well, male too, but all estrogen is aromatized from testosterone. And so in the ovaries, our FECA cells are what make our androgens. The 25% that gets released systemically, but the rest of it, all seven, the rest of the 75% gets aromatized in the granulosa cells into estrogen. So if, if you have issues with aromatase, either, you know, with like maybe the enzyme, things that are affecting the aromatase enzyme or, or, or SNP, then you can have estrogen issues just right there in the ovaries. Carrie, let's talk about interventions. So if we're suspecting low testosterone, are there things we can do naturally to help 
elevate our levels? <laughs> yes. So the first thing I tell uh, clinicians is look for like test their testosterone, of course, but check their estrogen, check their progesterone, check their FSH, really do an ovarian look because, and ask symptoms. Do you have regular cycles? What are your periods like? What's been going on? How old are you? You know, those kind of questions, because you can help at least narrow it down to, is it maybe more ovarian? Is that's the issue or more adrenal? Cause I also mm -hmm. want you asking, tell me about your energy. Let's check your cortisol in testing. Um, let's look at your DHEA because again, the other large percentage are made in the adrenal glands. And so if I'm working to help support a woman's testosterone, then I'm either going to be doing brain signaling support and adrenal mitochondrial support, or I'm going to do brain signaling support and ovarian, you know, mitochondrial support or both. Sometimes women need both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what does that actually mean when you're talking about brain signaling <laughs> support? What would yes. that actually mean? So assuming like, let's pretend, you know, somebody's had uh, high stress is an example. Like this is a perfect year. Let's just it's pretend. Been a terrible year. Let's just yeah. pretend that somebody's <laughs> had it. <laughs> right. <laughs> high stress. And so the brain, right, is always scanning. It's always scanning for uh, threats and, and alerts. And so if you've had high cortisol since, I don't know, March of 2020, then you will slowly start to decrease your GNRH production from your brain. And if you decrease your GNRH, you're going to decrease your FSH and LH. And so that's going to gradually decrease your production out of the ovaries. And so now I know, okay, it's a stress, even though it's can be made in the adrenals, it's the stress related, it's the long-term cortisol related that is causing the decrease in the ovaries. So you would, so you can do ovarian support, but I'm also, I'm doing like Bacopa and cordyceps and maca mm -hmm. and, and zinc. And I'm doing, you know, like B vitamins and choline and and all of these, you know, adaptogens, because mm -hmm. we know they work on the brain too. And I'm having them exercise and weight lift and improve their BDNF and brain derived neurotrophic factor. Right. All these things that are kind of twofers, like they help the brain and they help the adrenals or they help the brain and they help the, you know, the ovaries, even chase tree, which is Vitex. We don't, we don't tend to think of chase tree. It's not an automatic raise the testosterone. It's, it's not a, it's not going to bring back your libido. But it is, it does work at the brain level. So if you're just struggling all around or you're working with patients who are struggling all around with, with ovarian function, that's what Chase Tree does. It works from the brain down, um, according to research, which makes it really nice. So it can maybe help a little bit get that process going since the first, the whole process of making hormones starts with androgens. And so it's great. We often think Chase Tree is with progesterone, but in order to make progesterone, you have to make estrogen. In order to make estrogen, you have to make androgens. Yeah, I love how you're talking about this, Carrie, because the way I think about hormones is sort of the secondary thing. Like we have to get the body into its best function before we might bring in the magic sprinkles that hormones <laughs> can be. And some of yes. this is like you said, like waking up that brain signaling, addressing things like sleep where we're going to be able to produce more BDNF, really bringing some more of the adaptogens. So we have more resilience. Certainly, I would think about detoxification, make sure that mm -hmm. a person is pooping. And I worry that all too often people looking for that root cause or that quick fix are going right to the hormones. And this is where, in my opinion, hormones and hormone therapy, even the best hormone therapy needs still that support foundation. And it sounds to me like that's what you're talking about here. 
Absolutely. I mean, I was talking with a practitioner yesterday, actually, who has unfortunately had five years of mold exposure in her home. And I've known her a long time. And she had said to me, and she said yesterday, man, I used to have such a high libido and I could care less right now. And I was like, well, I wouldn't just put you on testosterone. Like, I'm glad you're getting your, your, your mold and mycotoxin exposure dealt with. And I would imagine if with all of this support you're doing that that's, needs to be the primary focus and gradually over time your testosterone will rebound because it's kind of hard to make testosterone and have a libido and you're constantly fighting a stealth or maybe overt uh, infection or you have low-grade chronic inflammation or chronic ongoing cortisol production due to stress for whatever reason and so if we don't get to that first you're right all they're going to do is jump on testosterone the supplement the prescription and kind of miss the boat yeah yeah we have to do that really baseline work and then this becomes icing on the cake where we can really bring the yes. body even to <laughs> further regulation so let's talk about prescription testosterone do you have favorite ways that you would bring testosterone in for a female patient so i will say the most common ways are topical of course so topical or maybe even vet Vaginal. I do have patients that are doing a sublingual hormones, like a trochi or troche, depending how you say it. And I'll mix the testosterone in there. What I do ask a number one, because it is testosterone is, are you around people, i.e. kids that you're hugging and touching and loving on? And if you rub it on your arm, that you're going to smear it all over them. Cause if that's the case, we need to either do it vaginally or we need to do it sublingually. Right. On the flip side, for the women who are doing maybe a vaginal cream, I'll say, just a reminder, <laughs> don't use it as lubrication right. if you're having <laughs> intercourse because he or she can pick it up and then it will affect their systemic levels as well. So before you just jump on the, gr the latest train on how to prescribe testosterone, please definitely ask these questions. Now, there's also the pellet. So as women, especially in menopause, maybe prefer the pellet method because it's in it's you know slipped in the hip um, and is active for three or four months depending on her metabolism but i will say with the pellet for the women who use the pellet and love it it works amazing and for the women who get the pellet and they hate it i'm like there's very little we can do we have mm. to kind of wait for the pellet to wear off and we do a lot of negative symptom mitigation so i don't generally i don't insert pellets but before a woman before I referred for pellet insertion, I'm like, let's just try testosterone. Right. Let's just try it in some way and make sure this hormone, you and this hormone are going to get along before we jump into putting it in your hip and then you have negative reactions. But in my practice, I also had a lot of, I called it like pellet cleanup. So oh. I, I, if somebody's listening and they insert pellets and they have tons of success, I more absolutely like more power to them. That's what you do all day. I seem to attract women who preferred not to have the pellet. And so that's what I focused on the most. And, you know, we, a lot of us spend time mitigating those negative effects. I, <laughs> I like, I just see, I think I'm sure you do too. Like I just got an Instagram message from somebody who got like extra shots of something they shouldn't have gotten at that dosing, right? We always need to start mm -hmm. really low and see how the body is impacted when we're putting anything into the system supplementally or pharmaceutically. What are those negative Negative effects. Yeah. And well, what's interesting is that you can, you can have low testosterone and still favor that five alpha pathway we were discussing. So you go on testosterone thinking, well, I'm low. I need testosterone. My doctor's prescribing it. And then you go, oh my gosh, I have acne. And right. I have like 
all this crazy hair on my chin and my neck and my, I'm getting like hair loss out of my head. What's happening? It's like, well, you just got more testosterone in your system. And unfortunately the pathway of choice is the one that causes those symptoms. So now you still have to use diet and lifestyle intervention, uh, inflammation and insulin, high, high, high insulin, insulin resistance will push that pathway. So we have to work on those things. And then there are supplements that are known to help sort of mitigate or reduce that pathway, such as the common one everyone knows, of course, is salt palmetto. Mm -hmm. But reishi mushroom is my probably my favorite when you read the literature. But then you'll also see EGCG from green tea and uh, stinging nettle root and pygium africanum. And of course, there's prescription medications that, you know, like finasteride, right? People Propecia and things like that that are known. I mean, they have a lot of side effects. Be careful, but they are known to be what we call five alpha blockers. Carrie, always so much fun to sit in the hormone place with you. <laughs> Your clinical wisdom is phenomenal. I've been a huge fan of yours for such a long time now. I feel so fortunate to be able to have these conversations with you personally and professionally. So thank you again for coming back onto the 15 Minute Matrix. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's, I've, we've known each other a really long time, so it's always a joy. Hello, this is Dr. Ralph Esposito, and today we'll be mapping testosterone on the 15-minute matrix. Ralph Esposito is a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist specializing in integrative urology and endocrinology with a hyper-focus on men's health. His precise and personalized style utilizes a systems biology and precision medicine approach to medicine. And because I really don't think we focus enough on men and their hormones, I chose to spend a little extra time with Ralph and his wisdom today, which I think you will appreciate in this deep dive we're having into testosterone. Ralph, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I'm excited too. We we don't get to talk about men enough, oddly enough, in functional nutrition and in the full body systems training. And today we are specifically talking about men and tea. Can you kick us off by identifying what testosterone is and particularly what it is in the male body? Yeah. So testosterone essentially is one of the main male sex hormones majority by the testes, which is signaled by hormones that are released by the brain. And it has a multitude of functions. The one that men can feel the most is the muscle growth and libido and sex drive. It has other benefits in terms of uh, cardiovascular protection, immune support, repair. It, it literally, when you look at it, every cell that has an androgen receptor is going to be responsive to testosterone. So that's kind of the, the two-second breakdown of it. And I mean, always when we're producing our hormones, you talked about starting in the brain. Do you mind talking about the precursor hormones and what's triggering the production of testosterone in the testes? Yeah. So testosterone, uh, like most other sex hormones is derived from base substrate would be cholesterol. And essentially this all happens in the testes. So the brain, the hypothalamus will signal to the pituitary to release uh, LH and FSH, glutenizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone. And women have these hormones as well, these pro-hormones. Yep. But essentially in men, what they do is they travel down 
all the way throughout the body, and they bind to receptors on the testes, specifically on the Leydig, L-E-Y-D-I-G, Leydig cell of the testes. And these LH receptors, with a multitude of downstream effects or a multitude of downstream cascades, then push uh, cyclic AMP and basically grind down to signal to the uh, Leydig cells to synthesize testosterone. And that signal can only happen if LH binds to the receptor, or if you're using something exogenous like HCG, which would bind to a similar receptor, a different subunit, but would bind to those receptors, signal to the testes to make testosterone. It then synthesizes the endogenous or the intracellular cholesterol that's there in the mitochondria, will synthesize testosterone based on enzymes that are active there, which are not found in other parts of the body and will push out testosterone to be released. Within the testes, it's bound to a binding protein, and then it's released into the serum bound to sex hormone binding globulin, so it can travel throughout the body via the protein carrier and then find its way throughout the whole body where it needs to find its target cell. I have so many questions, Ralph. I'm like scribbling things Hmm. that I want to ask you. I mean, first of all, I have a question about cholesterol, which you mentioned, which is so important for the production of the hormone, essentially its own pro-hormone. What happens to men who are on cholesterol-lowering meds? And is there an ideal range that cholesterol should be in to functionally help with testosterone management and production throughout a lifespan? You asked a very simple and logical question with a (laughs) not-so-clear answer, which is totally fine. And I again, this is a lot of what I believe to be endocrinology of the art and science of of medicine, of modern medicine. Yep. Um, the, the answer is we don't know if there is a, uh, absolute, uh, effect of statins or any type of lipid lowering agent and their ability to completely suppress hormone production. We do know that cholesterol is necessary to make these hormones. And there are some studies that may suggest that statins can lower testosterone levels. The strength of those studies to me are enough to, piqued my interest, but not enough for me to absolutely be conclusive about what they're doing to the testes. If you look at a total testosterone level, and let's say we were being very conservative and said a total testosterone of 100 uh, nanograms per, excuse me, milligrams per deciliter, let's say 150, right, which some would be considered to be on the low end. If you have about five liters of blood in the body, you're still making significant amounts of, or you still have significant amounts of cholesterol floating throughout the body. But more importantly, that's representative of the amount of liver, of cholesterol synthesized by the liver mostly. Your testes have the ability to make these hormones endogenously. They have their own Mm. synthesis. They have their own ability to make this basically as needed. So it's very hard to say that if you got somebody's cholesterol level down to zero, would it impact their testosterone synthesis? Probably, right? But if you got it down to a low level, would it completely suppress their synthesis? And I I can't say that's totally the case because remember that hormone is synthesized, testosterone and these sex hormones are synthesized based on these signals. And those signals then also can require that cell, the lytic cell to um, bring in more cholesterol or make more. 
And that's where it becomes a little bit tricky. I, I do think you need to weigh the risks and benefits. Um, mm-hmm. you know, what are what are the risks of those things impacting somebody's cardiovascular risk compared to their testosterone levels? And and also you have to understand that are those drops in testosterone a result of other metabolic issues that might right. be occurring, right? So men who are on statins are usually not the most metabolically healthy. And mm-hmm. and it's hard to discern which one is most impactful. So I don't know if the two are concordant or just um, um, causal. It, it's really hard to say. I haven't made a decision yet, but I do have advised practitioners to just be a little bit aware of those effects, but always treat each person as their own. So an N of one is going to overpower an N of, you know, 5,000. I love that. You know, it goes back to the whole point of the matrix and this podcast is we are all unique. Everything is connected and all things matter. So it just brings us into the N of one, as you said, what does it mean to this individual? Speaking of the individual and looking at a lifetime of testosterone, is there a time I may get this wrong, but is there a time even uh, pre-birth where testosterone is present then gets suppressed? Do I have that right? What's happening with testosterone in the time of puberty? I mean, there's there's puberty where sex hormone production is going to be synthesized. And then prior to that, there's andronarchy, which is where the adrenal glands are starting to ramp up. And you can make some sex hormones during this earlier phase. It usually depends on the child and obviously the the quality of the food that they're having, because we do know that that has an impact on their hormonal production. But that can happen usually, you know, between ages of eight or 12 prior to entering puberty. And those can fluctuate. And we don't know if that actually impacts later production. It's a very interesting question. And I think that has a lot to do with the current etiology we're seeing of uh, testosterone deficiency occurring earlier and earlier in men. I think perhaps we're having these endocrine disruptors, which may be impacting some down the line effects of what we're seeing. But yeah, it certainly does happen in younger um, and, and boys, right? And that's where the Tanner stages right. come yep. in is to assessing where they are in terms of their puberty, which is largely impacted by testosterone, but other androgens like DHEA, androstenedione, et cetera. Uh, can be uh, influenced. And when we see that kind of first spurt of hormones, of testosterone in particular, are we seeing more issues with other physiological uh, imbalances, possibly blood sugar issues or regulation or skin issues or inflammation? Does it correspond to other things happening in the body when we see that increase or those initial increases in testosterone? Yeah, absolutely. Again, because the testes are starting to, for lack of better terms, wake up and begin to start what their life function will be. And in most men, it will be most of their life that these were are going to take effect. It certainly impacts the whole um, HPAGT, so hypothalamic pituitary gonadal adrenal thyroid axis. And yes, so testosterone will impact, um, you know, sebum production. It will impact blood glucose regulation, uh, largely through the function of sensitizing to insulin receptors and improving muscle mass. So these are things that, you know, young teenagers are going to experience. And it's totally normal. It's totally expected. It's unpredictable, however. And uh, again, it's, it's, I think, a large, a large part of what we're seeing are endocrine disruptors in our society that are impacting the way that these hormones would typically function. 
and I think is exacerbating or suppressing some ways that they will act. So kids not growing as tall or as quickly as they would uh, expect or as their doctor would expect or, you know, being, you know, six foot four in the fifth grade and having, you know, being 200 pounds, bench pressing 200 pounds. Right. So the scale can go both ways. When you talk about those endocrine disruptors, we're talking mostly about environmental inputs. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Are there some in particular that you are identifying as impacting testosterone production and regulation? Yeah, a few of those would be, you know, PCBs, things that you find in farmed fish. A lot of them would be even freshwater fish. You find things like plastics, like BPA, and all of these con- constituents are, they're pretty much omnipresent, right? They're, they're, they exist mostly everywhere. And this could also be things that are in our food supply, like, like uh, pesticides, right? That can have an impact on the way that right. these receptors function and have an impact on estrogen receptors. And the last thing you want to do is modulate away your estrogen receptors are occurring in a young male. So these are things that I don't think there's one that I would say that's the one that you want to be aware of, but it certainly is something that it, it can be present in multiple different areas, whether it's food or in plastics or in medication yeah. supplements. And uh, you just have to make sure that you're doing your due diligence and, and make sure that the food that you're eating is clean and and uh, not contaminated. Yeah, all things matter. So when we think about testosterone, you have mentioned estrogen and estrogen receptors. We're looking at that cascade. Testosterone can flip and become estrogen. Mm-hmm. Is that right? That's right. That's exactly how it functions. That's, that is how men make their estrogen. They're flipping their testosterone to become estrogen. Right. And we just want to make sure that's mitigated to not be out of balance. Exactly right. So the enzyme is aromatase and uh, aromatase can impact uh, testosterone and convert it to, to estradiol. And we want to make sure that we're not having that occur too much because that can actually have the opposite effect of what we would want uh, testosterone to do. And what what that can do is obviously bind to estrogen receptors. It has benefits, however. So, you know, estrogen gets a bad reputation where people think, well, estrogen mm-hmm. is bad, right? So we need to make sure it's low or as low as possible. But that's not necessarily true. It does have protective benefits in cardiovascular, endothelial health, in Alzheimer's disease, uh, even bone density. The yeah. issue becomes is when these numbers become too high or disproportionate. And that usually happens when the body's upregulating cytoc- aromatase cytochrome and converting it to estrogen and not making enough testosterone to accommodate for that. So you would see this usually in men with like metabolic syndrome who have high right. body fat who which is one of the major sources of of aromatase. Let's talk numbers for a minute. When you are looking at testosterone, do you have favorite methods of measuring? And if so, are there ranges that you're looking at through a more functional lens? Sure. Yeah. So the gold standard at this point is going to be serum, mostly because it's what a lot of literature is following. And the good thing about testosterone uh, compared to estrogen is that you can measure free testosterone in the blood, whereas estrogen, you're not really getting that picture in totality because you can right. only you can only really check. I mean, you can check E1, E2, E3, uh, but you're not really getting a full picture as to what's active or not. Whereas with testosterone, yep. you can. You can measure SHBG. 
you can get a, a direct analysis of free testosterone. So I, I do like to use dried urinary uh, hormone testing like the Dutch test to mm -hmm. get an idea of what these levels are doing in terms of free, but you can get a good picture of that with the blood. So essentially I'm testing total testosterone, free testosterone via calculation from SHBG and albumin, which is into that calculation. In addition to that, you have to identify, you know, how much of that is going to estradiol. So you test E2 levels, and then you can also assess FSH and LH to identify what is happening from the brain to the yep. to the testes and how is that how are they communicating? Yeah, that's really brilliant and just really understanding that whole picture. I have two last questions for you. One is I'm working to do a bit more bridging between the realm of functional nutrition and functional medicine and those practitioners who work with transgender folks. And I'm wondering if you've seen in the use of testosterone, a uh, conversion that might be happening that could be potentially a negative impact on a body that is taking higher doses of testosterone at one time or anything we should be thinking about that you would consider from that lens? So in other words, are there any things we have to be alarmed about in people who are getting exogenous testosterone, whether they're yes. male or female or mostly in, in male? Yeah. Yeah, certainly one way to kind of clear this up is that I'm not concerned about the risk of testosterone increasing prostate cancer risk. I'm not concerned mm -hmm. about testosterone increasing cardiovascular risk. I think a lot of those individuals who experience those risks potentially already had those pre-existing conditions that were just exacerbated by a anabolic hormone. So those are one of the things that I think is on the radar for most clinicians, which is probably a uh, just a, a paradigm that's been built within the conventional medicine model has been hard to correct because it's in textbooks. So that's one thing that is uh, considered to be alarming for most practitioners, but not necessarily to me, if you truly understand the literature and how it's being interpreted. Secondly, there are certain issues where testosterone can be problematic. And if you're doing supraphysiologic doses, then we really don't have a good idea of what that's doing to the body. So is that impacting liver function tests? Is that going to be mm -hmm. impacting increased bone growth, right? Because we know bone can mm. improve bone, uh, testosterone can improve bone density, but right. we don't know what happens when you hit a supraphysiologic level. I think the larger issue comes from what is that DHT and the metabolites, what are those doing? And there's metabolites of DHT, 3-alpha and 3-beta-diol, which uh, we think can be more problematic. And I think that's where the issue is deriving from, because those are the metabolites that bind to estrogen receptors, alpha and beta, and can contribute to increased proliferation and decreased differentiation of uh, certain tissue, specifically prostate tissue. And that's where the trouble usually stems from not necessarily the testosterone itself. Mm, there's so many clinical pearls in what you just shared right there in terms of the cascade. My final question for you, Ralph, is there anything else that you wish coaches and clinicians knew about men and testosterone? Whew. One thing, geez. Well, anything we didn't talk about or touch on that, that yeah. you really wish like, wow, people don't know this. Yeah, I, I would say that I think a lot of um, clinicians really uh, underestimate how many men are experiencing testosterone deficiency when mm. their numbers and or their symptoms don't match. I largely look at symptoms in men because that'll tell you how well their androgen receptors are being sensitized. When we look at men or the endocrine society that has these guidelines, right, and they say, 
must have a low testosterone and have symptoms. I, I largely agree and largely disagree with that because I think a man, a man can have symptoms, but have a normal testosterone level. And that tells me that we're dismissing the whole a- aspect of androgen receptors. Similarly to how the society has learned to understand that insulin resistance exists. And, and thyroid. A, yeah. Yeah. And thyroid. Excellent. Yeah. So it's like, great, with TSH of a 4.5 is normal. Well, not not quite, right? And we're having larger societies and institutions concur. I think the endocrine society is not really on that level, or not endocrine society itself, but the endocrine community is not really aligned with what we're seeing in terms of androgen receptors, largely because we can't test it. But if you look at some genetic SNPs that suggest CAG repeats, maybe uh, desensitize these receptors and, and may make men feel a little bit less robust on a normal testosterone, normal, quote, uh, testosterone level, then that's one big aspect that I think we're missing out on, um, which is probably harder to assess, but don't discount a low number or a high number um, uh, and or a symptom. Uh, you have to look at everything within the totality of, of the, the person you're you're looking at. So I lied. I have another question for you. Um, if we look at the right side of the matrix, sure. sleep and relaxation, exercise, movement, nutrition, hydration, stress, resilience, relationship networks. So are there some things you can tick in each box that help with the cascade of the production and regulation and utilization of testosterone for men? I think a better question is, is there something that I can, that I would miss out on? by not right. on each of these boxes. <laughs> if I had to, if I had to prioritize them just, you know, off the top of my head, if we have, let's see, one, two, three, five boxes here, if we had to prioritize them in um, priority, I would go sleep, stress, uh, exercise, nutrition, then relationships. Um, I, I mean, that's really off the, that was a quick speed uh, assessment. But <laughs> I think it's a good one. I would agree with that. Sleep is a non-negotiable stress, I'm sure, impacts the hormones in the cascade. Exercise, we know, right? Exercise mm-hmm. is going to improve the utilization. Nutrition is important. Yes. But, you know, yeah. largely what we underestimate are the relationships. And mm. it's 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 hard to assess. But I think what we see is that in, you have, in events where you have relationships that are very poor, whether it's the person and their partner, uh, a male uh, with his partner, or um, a male uh, with other relationships in his life, whether it's with work or with his himself or other th- uh, relationships, if those are not fulfilling and those are not happy and empowering, then it can impact your your hormonal levels. And that sounds a little bit quirky to me, right? Like, how the hell could my you know, relationship at work have an impact on my hormones. And really what I'm saying is that your relationships and how you integrate your life with other human beings has an impact on your HPG access. And anything that's perceived as a stress is going to have a negative effect. It all depends mm-hmm. on the allostatic load and how many of those aspects are uh, pushing you towards your threshold. So it can be the topping uh, or the, the cherry on top or the, the straw that broke the camel's back or whatever analogy you want to use. 
But all of these things can contribute to that overwhelmed threshold. Really brilliant. I love how we got into the biochemistry, the whole physiology, and ended with some tactical things that we can be highlighting for the men or males we work with. Thank you, Ralph, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified by email each week about our podcast releases, head on over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We would love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. Dot com. 